Colleges and universities say they're committed to ensuring diversity despite the Supreme Court decision striking down affirmative action in admissions. It's Friday, June 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Supreme Court is also expected to rule today on challenges to President Joe Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. What the president has done is take on the role of Congress to appropriate money. What he has done is totally illegal. Plus, more than 600 protesters have been arrested over the fatal police shooting of a teenager in France. Also this hour, a Provincetown summer program for young LGBTQ plus adults gets a new home and security. This program will never die at this point. You know, like, even if there was a terrible financial ruin, this was a cash purchase. Mostly sunny and low 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Smoke from Canadian wildfire stretches from Michigan all the way to North Carolina. The tracking site IQ Air says Washington, D.C. has the worst air quality of any other city in the United States. From member station WAMU, Sarah Kim reports. The Washington, D.C. region is code red, an air quality measure considered unhealthy for all groups, but especially for older adults, children, and people with lung disease. Chris Rodriguez with D.C.'s Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency says people in sensitive groups should stay indoors. And if they must go out, wear a high-quality mask. And he says everyone should take precautions. Perhaps, you know, taking more breaks if they are participating in outdoor activities and choosing less strenuous activities as well. For example, uh, maybe walking instead of running. Earlier this month, D.C.'s air quality for the first time reached code purple, considered very unhealthy. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Y. Kim in Washington, D.C. Colleges and universities are assessing the effects of yesterday's Supreme Court ruling. It struck down the explicit consideration of race in college admissions. President Biden has sharply criticized the ruling, as have several civil rights groups. Supporters, including some Asian American activists, say the ruling was correct. From member station GBH, Kirk Carapesa has more. Swan Lee is a Chinese immigrant and mother of twins in Brookline, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. She's also co-founder of the Asian American Coalition for Education, which has backed the lawsuit against Harvard ever since it was filed here in federal court in 2015. A majority of my organization's supporters are first-generation immigrants and naturalized citizens. So we really feel this is a first-hand experience of American dream of equal rights coming true. Some other Asian-led groups, including Asian Americans Advancing Justice, are denouncing the decision as an attack on civil rights and calling for an increased commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion from colleges. For NPR News, I'm Kirk Carapeza in Boston. Former Florida Sheriff's Deputy Scott Peterson was acquitted yesterday of failing to try to stop the gunman during the 2018 mass shooting at a Parkland High School. 17 people were killed. Tony Montalto's daughter, Gina, was among those murdered. He says Peterson's actions won't ever be forgotten. Despite the fact that he was acquitted, it will not change the video that should be seared in everyone's mind of his cowardly actions as he ran away from that building, where the shots were ringing out, where students and teachers were defenseless, depending on the school resource officer to save them. The gunman in the case has been convicted of the massacre and is now serving life in prison. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are higher. You're listening to NPR News 
from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. An official at UMass Amherst says the university is well situated to deal with the repercussions of yesterday's Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action. It states that race cannot be considered as a factor on its own in college admissions. Nefertiti Walker is the chief diversity officer at UMass Amherst. We've done so much work to ensure that we're recruiting from a very diverse base of people across the Commonwealth and beyond that we can feel confident in our processes at the admissions level to be able to continue to recruit a diverse student body regardless of the ruling that has been made. Walker says the university has partnered with a growing number of Massachusetts high schools and community groups to build a more diverse applicant pool. The T's Green Line extension into Medford is shutting down for more than a month this summer. The closure between Leachmere and Union Square will start in mid-July. The line will remain closed until the end of August. Officials say the closure is needed for critical repair work on the Squires Bridge. They add that shuttle buses will not be available as an alternate service during the closure. One of the country's largest Fourth of July festivals kicks off in Boston today. Boston Harbor Fest has been celebrating the holiday for over four decades. Festivities will include historical reenactments, musical performances, and fireworks. The event runs through July 4th. It's 7.05. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region, Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. The Red Sox lost again last night to the Miami Marlins. The Game 3 win gave the Marlins a sweep of the series. Final score was 2-0. to zero. The Sox are off today where they'll face off. For lots of people, today is the start of the July 4th holiday. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce has a look at what we can expect going into the weekend. It's going to be a really nice summer day today to kick off the holiday weekend. Blend of sun and clouds, highs 80 to 85, 70s on the Cape, still humid, but not much in the way of thunderstorms. In fact, I think most of us stay dry aside from an isolated storm or two north and west of Boston. Tomorrow, another great one, warm and humid in and out of clouds, highs around 80, dry through the afternoon. Then some thunderstorms will develop during the evening, mainly inland. More showers and storms are likely Sunday and Monday. Scattered action in general, so keep an eye of the sky. There'll probably be some storms around on the 4th of July, too, so I'll keep you posted on, on that exact timing in the days ahead. It's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. How will universities respond to a Supreme Court ruling on admissions? The court said yesterday that Harvard and the University of North Carolina may not use race as one factor in deciding who to admit. This affects other schools, including the 64 different colleges and universities that are part of the State University of New York system. John King Jr. is that giant system's chancellor. He's on the line. Good morning. Good morning. Have your schools used race as a factor in admissions up to now? Well, across our 64 institutions, there are a range of policies, but certainly at our four university centers and across our four uh, medical schools, uh, we have holistic admissions processes where diversity is a factor in, in how we determine admissions. When you say that, you're saying that at your more selective schools where fewer people of the applicants get in, you are using race as a factor in a way that sounds pretty similar to what Harvard and North Carolina did. Do you anticipate having to change things then? Well, we're reviewing now the policies at each of the institutions and how they'll be adjusted. You know, at the end of the day, diversity, equity, and inclusion are core values for us as a system. We're going to work to make sure within the law we maintain a diverse class, factors like socioeconomic status, uh, whether or not a student is the first in their family to go to college, uh, the ways in which students may have overcome adversity in their lives, inclu including adversity tied to race. Uh, all of that will continue to be a factor and, con again, consistent with the law. Uh, just to be clear on what you're saying, you're not responding to this ruling and saying seeking diversity in some way is wrong and we're going to give it up. You're going to seek other ways to do it. That's exactly right, and I think that's the responsibility of the higher education sector. And, if, and it's if interesting we want, when, when you talk about. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, just going to say. If, yeah, go if, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. If we if we want a, a healthy democracy, we need to have uh, diverse leaders. We need to have diverse teachers. We need to have diverse doctors, and higher education has to work to ensure that. It's an interesting distinction that is made in Justice Roberts' uh, opinion, also Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion for the for the majority. They essentially argue it is wrong to give an applicant credit just for being a member of a group. For example, just being black should not get you uh, a credit entirely aside from what the Constitution says. Clarence Thomas especially doesn't like the idea, but he and Justice Roberts indicate that if you had some individual experience that you can highlight, that that is okay. Do you think that's going to be sufficient for individuals to call out circumstances in which they have had something they should get credit for? Look, let's be clear by removing the tool of race conscious admissions. Uh, the evidence is it, it, it results in fewer black and Latino students on campuses. That's what we saw in California and Michigan. Uh, the ability to, to look at uh, individual experiences uh, with adversity, that will help mitigate the harm of this decision. Um, but ultimately, I think where the the majority just misunderstands how the admissions process works, we're talking about a pool of students who are qualified, that's first. And then once we have a large pool of qualified students as we try to build a class, uh, we want to consider diversity as we're building 
that class. And I think they're a bit disingenuous in trying to frame this in a way that suggests somehow unqualified students are uh, being admitted. It just isn't factually accurate. They, they make another assertion that admissions is a zero-sum game. If you admit a black student for being black, to oversimplify a little bit here, you're rejecting a white student or rejecting an Asian student. Are they missing something when they say it that way? Yeah, again, I think they're, they're misrepresenting how the admissions process works. You know, there are um, policies at, at Harvard, for example, where students are admitted because uh, they are legacies, because they're uh, one of multiple generations in their family to go to Harvard. There are students who are uh, admitted because they're a tuba player. Yeah. Uh, there are students who are admitted because they're great lacrosse players. And so there's a range of factors as universities try to build a class. Okay. John B. King, Jr. is former education secretary and chancellor of the State University of New York. Thanks so much. Thank you. More holiday travelers than ever are expected to board planes this weekend. And ahead of July 4th, the website FlightAware has already tracked hundreds of flight cancellations today and even more delays. Extreme heat that's cooking up weather delays is a problem. The airlines also blame the Federal Aviation Administration and a shortage of air traffic controllers. So returning to Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg to ask what's going on. Good morning, Secretary. Good morning. Good to be with you. So thanks for being here. So for the 2.8 million people that the TSA says will fly today, is air travel in any better shape than last summer when airlines canceled more than 20% of their flights? Absolutely. For one thing, passengers have dramatically more protections than they had about a year ago. If you go to our website, flightrights.gov, you can get more information about the binding commitments that we've gotten from airlines to take care of passengers in a number of scenarios. As of a, a year ago, not one of the major airlines promised that you could even get things like uh, meals, uh, vouchers, ground transportation in a case where the airline was responsible for you being stranded. Now nearly all of them do. So that's improved. And on-time performance has improved as well. What we saw last year was even on so-called blue sky days, we mm -hmm. had uh, often unusually high rates of cancellation and delay. This year, that's not been true. We had very busy travel weekends uh, and periods where we didn't see those kinds of delays. But of course, severe weather can have a major impact. And that's what we're seeing this week. Uh, going, uh, coming out of the weekend, going into the first part of this week, a lot of that weather simultaneously hit multiple key hubs and that led to uh, an unusually high number of cancellations and delays this week. Now we're seeing the system come back to normal, although it's depending a little bit from airline to airline what the results are. So you mentioned the weather, but the CEO of United Airlines blamed FAA staffing issues after they canceled almost 800 flights on Tuesday. Is that also part of the problem? Well, uh, the data that we have and even the data from the airline industry suggests that uh, ATC staffing issues account for less than 10% of the delay minutes that you see. So mm -hmm. it is a factor and uh, a factor that we're working very aggressively on. Uh, one thing that I do agree with uh, airline leadership on is that we need to get more resources, both for staffing and technology, to the FAA. And there's a reauthorization bill actually right now working its way through Congress that would help with that. But I want to be very clear that ATC staffing issues are not the main cause. They're not even the number two cause uh, of these delays. And in the case of United, what you saw is that they were really having issues that uh, were particular to that airline. Uh, by yesterday, 
say, the cancellation rate across the system, except for United, was back to 2%, which you'd basically consider to be a normal level. They were about 10 times that, but they do appear to be improving as well uh, off of their uh, worst day, which would have been Tuesday, and we're hopeful that today they can get their operations back to normal. Now, Saturday is also the deadline for airlines to adapt their tech to 5G wireless signals. Engineers say 5G could interfere with equipment on older planes. Are you prepared for disruptions from that? Yes, this is another issue we're watching closely along with the severe weather and potential impacts from the Canadian wildfire smoke. Mm. What you have here is a process that's been going on for the last year and a half where the airlines have known that they need to adapt their aircraft to make sure that their equipment is able to operate safely even while the power gets turned up on this new technology 5G antennas that the uh, cell phone carriers have been deploying. The majority of the fleet has been upgraded, but there are still a lot of planes out there that have not. And uh, they, uh, the FAA is not going to allow anything to take place which isn't safe, which means some of those aircraft may be restricted from operating at certain airports under low visibility conditions. Uh, if that happens, we are uh, instructing the airlines to make sure to uh, deal with that in terms of realistic scheduling. In other words, if you're an airline that has some of these aircraft that have not yet been upgraded, you need to make sure your schedule accounts for that. Otherwise, that could be a cause uh, for action. But I will say the airlines have stepped up. They've, they've upgraded the majority of the aircraft. Uh, we're watching closely to see how they perform. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you for your time. Thank you. For people who have hepatitis C, there is a safe and effective cure, which is not being widely used. NPR's Ping Huang reports. Back in the mid-1980s, when Richard Janish was born with hepatitis C, the disease was considered a death sentence. He wasn't expected to live past 30. Then, 10 years ago, the diagnosis changed. A new generation of drugs could cure hep C, and they were safe to use with few side effects. So yeah, huge, huge change with these new treatments. So these new treatments are just way better in that way. Janish would know. He had tried several treatments before the new cure was available. Now he's clear of hep C, and he's trying to make it easier for others to get cured too. That's not happening enough, according to a new report from the CDC. In the past 10 years, just 34% of those diagnosed with hep C have managed to clear the virus from their bodies. Hep C is a viral disease, and it spreads between people through contact with infected blood. If it's not treated, it can lead to severe liver damage and liver cancer, and around 15,000 people die from it every year in the U.S. The treatments are quite expensive, coming in at twenty dollars to $25,000 a course, and many insurance providers have put restrictions in place, like requiring patients to have advanced liver disease or a prescription from a specialist, or requiring that they stop using drugs before accessing the treatment. Dr. Carolyn Wester with CDC says it's a problem that insurers have put these restrictions in place. None of those are evidence-based. The national recommendations for hepatitis C treatment are essentially everybody who has hepatitis C um, should be cured. The Biden administration has proposed a five-year, $11 billion plan to improve testing and access to treatment and to eliminate hep C in the U.S. The plan is being considered by Congress. Ping Huang, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get the latest on protests in France following the deadly police shooting of a 17-year-old during a traffic stop. Over 600 people have been arrested and 200 police officers hurt. It's 719. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. The Supreme Court has had a busy term and it ain't over yet. The justices have already weighed in on voting rights and affirmative action. Today, they rule on Biden's student loan forgiveness plan and a case involving LGBT couples and a Christian wedding website designer. We'll have news and analysis about those decisions on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Just a few clouds today. Otherwise, we'll have sunny skies and highs in the low 80s. Tonight, more clouds move in and it falls to lows in the mid-60s. Saturday, mostly sunny and low 80s with a chance of afternoon showers. Mostly cloudy on Sunday and in the low 80s with another chance of afternoon showers. It's 70 degrees in Boston. WBUR has you covered this morning with the forecast for the holiday weekend weather and what to expect if you're traveling for the 4th. Stick around and thanks for listening. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. The co-host of NPR's Code Switch podcast, B.A. Parker, takes us on a journey to understand her own family's history. She has a question. How do I honor my ancestors? Her family traces its roots to Somerset Plantation in Cresswell, North Carolina. It's a place she didn't visit for many years, even though she'd pass it while visiting her family's farm every summer. But in her quest to understand her history, she goes with her mother back to the place where her ancestors were enslaved. That trip is featured in the second episode of a two-part series out today. Parker is with us now to discuss her stories. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing all right. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. So you open your stories with the voice of your grandmother. But I'm going to play a little bit of what she said to you. Sunset Place is a... It's an old slave plantation just out of uh, Crestwell. My uh, great-grandmother and great-grandfather were slaves there. They had their children 
they're some of their children there. So losing her, first of all, I'm so sorry that you did. You. Was she your bridge to your family's history? Oh, for sure. My grandmother, there's like a, a proverb that's like the loss of an elder is like the burning down of a library. Mm-hmm. And so losing my grandmother was kind of like losing that library of knowledge. If I don't have that library, what can I do? And that's just been my kind of quest throughout this whole thing. You had avoided the plantation where your ancestors were enslaved, but you ended up going back with your mom. Can you talk about making the decision to do that and what you were looking for? I hadn't been there since I was in college, so when I was like 19, 20. Mm-hmm. My grandmother's grandmother, Ma Bell, mm-hmm. was born at this place. Ma Bell's parents, who were Dick and Patience Blunt, they died there mm. and are buried there. No one knows where the graveyard is at the plantation. Going there as an adult was to pay homage, was to not avoid the the traumas and the messiness of our history and just to embrace and honor and protect the legacies of those who were there. Is it hard, though, knowing this is where they were, but also what they were living through? Yeah. We went on this guided tour, and there's a story that the tour guide told us about there are these giant canals that surround the plantation. Two of the children who belonged to the plantation owner and two enslaved children were on a boat, and there was an accident, and they drowned, unfortunately. Mm. And it wasn't until I got home that I read a letter and found out that my, I guess, great-great-great-grandfather, Dick Blunt, was the enslaved person who had to take their bodies out of the canal. Wow. And, like, that was a story I'd never heard of before. And I never would have known, and it's such a heartbreaking story. Yeah. And that was just, like, a day in the life of one of my ancestors. There's this other moment where your mom is talking to you on this visit to the plantation that we're going to play. Well, we were told that... We are descendants of the original 13. The, the 13 um, enslaved slaves. that came to Somerset. Somerset. Yeah, okay. Most white people know. They can trace all the way to the Girl, Mayflower. To the Mayflower, Daughters of the Revolution. Yeah. But a lot of times, black families can't do that. When you heard your mom saying that, I mean, you went back to find the stories that your grandmother would tell you. But there's a lot that you maybe will never know because your ancestors were forced here against their will from their homeland. What is it like to sit with that? It's it's difficult. I am fortunate that I can trace to this place, this town. But, like, that's that's it. Hmm. I am... I think, eight generations removed from this place. But, like, that's the extent of the lineage that I can reach. There's an irony that comes from knowing that this place that wants to deny you your personhood Mm -hmm. is kind of now your origin story and your creation myth. 
uh, on this land. You went on this journey that you led us into. We listened to your grandmother before she passes, your attempts to get her a tombstone for her grave. You go back to the plantation with your mom. Again, it was to search for that question. Do you know what kind of descendant you want to be? I know that I want to do right by my grandmother and her siblings. I have four living great aunts who I want to honor. My mom tells the story of my grandmother and her nine siblings bought a tombstone in the 70s for her grandmother, who's in the same cemetery as, as my grams. Mm-hmm. Every August, her and her sisters would go to the cemetery and clean off the graves, and they'd put in fresh cloth flowers. My great-aunt Louise, I'm going to go with her in August to sweep off the headstones and make sure take all the, the weeds out of the, the crevices and wipe them down and put the flowers in and do this thing that my grandmother did for decades uh, to follow in her footsteps. That's like the bare minimum I can do. NPR's B.A. Parker, she's the co-host of the podcast Code Switch, and she's out with a two-part series on her own journey to figure out what kind of descendant she wants to be. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the story of a growing Provincetown summer program that gives young LGBTQ adults a welcoming and safe environment. It's 7.29. As you're heading out the door today, use the WBUR app to keep listening live. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A third night of protests in France has resulted in more clashes with police and more arrests of demonstrators. The protesters have been denouncing this week's fatal police shooting of a 17-year-old driver during a traffic stop in a Paris suburb. As Rebecca Rossman reports, the French government is calling for calm as it holds an emergency security meeting. French President Emmanuel Macron cut short a trip to Brussels this morning so he could attend the meeting. The Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, called last night's violence intolerable and inexcusable after cars and buildings were set on fire, stores ransacked, and fireworks were thrown at police who responded with tear gas to disperse the crowds. More than 650 people were arrested and nearly 250 officers were injured. 
The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule today on President Biden's proposal to erase billions of dollars in federal student loan debt. NPR's Cory Turner says the decision will affect millions of people. As many as 43 million people could be affected here, as many as 20 million could have their debts erased. Then again, critics of the plan say, look, this could cost $400 billion and it would privilege Americans who went to college over those who couldn't or chose not to. Yesterday, the nation's high court struck down the use of race as a factor in admissions at colleges and universities. This is NPR News. Extreme heat that's been gripping much of the South and parts of the Midwest for days is blamed for more than a dozen deaths in Texas and at least one in Louisiana. Afternoon temperatures at or near triple digits are expected again today over a wide area, from eastern Texas to the Florida Panhandle, northward to southern Illinois and Indiana. The technology firm SolarWinds says it's still dealing with the consequences from a 2020 security breach by Russian hackers. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin says the Securities and Exchange Commission is still investigating the company's response to that breach. After Russian hackers targeted software company SolarWinds to covertly break into its users' networks and spy on U.S. government agencies, the dangers of an insecure supply chain became painfully clear. By targeting one piece of popular software, it's possible to infect all its users in turn. SolarWinds worked with the government and private sector to recover, but it's still facing challenges years later. According to a new filing, SolarWinds executives have been notified of potential civil enforcement actions as a result of how the company handled the disclosure of the hack. SolarWinds CEO maintains his company fully cooperated with the agency. Ultimately, the SEC's actions could have implications for other victims of other hacks. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Dow futures are up 99 points. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. T officials are blaming an overheated third rail insulator for a fire on the Orange Line this week. The fire caused delays on the line when it broke out Wednesday morning at Tufts Medical Center. The MBTA says no one was injured. Transit crews are now inspecting all third rail insulators in the area. Applications for the Massachusetts low-number plate lottery open tonight. There are nearly 200 plates with low numbers available this year. Plates with low numbers include 1999, 4400, and more. The lottery closes at the end of July. Elected leaders and transit officials will celebrate the opening of a new ferry between Lynn and Boston today. The service will operate 10 trips each day between the two cities. The ferry officially began making trips on Monday. Transit officials say the ferry may be a good travel alternative during the Sumner Tunnel closure next month. The air quality advisory for Worcester and counties in central and western Mass has been extended through tonight. The State Department of Environmental Protection says the smoke from Canadian wildfires is causing unhealthy air quality for sensitive groups. The department advises anyone who has to be outside for prolonged periods to take breaks and keep any relief medicine handy. It's 734.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Red Sox lost their fifth game in a row. Last night's game against the Miami Marlins ended in a 2-0 defeat. That gave the Marlins a clean sweep of the series. The Sox hit the road today. They'll play the Blue Jays in Toronto tonight at 7. Low 80s today under mostly sunny skies. Mid-60s tonight, and it'll be mostly overcast. Then in the low 80s all weekend with mostly sunny skies on Saturday and mostly cloudy skies on Sunday. There's a chance of afternoon showers on both days. It's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faudel. For the third straight night in France, police clashed with protesters in major cities across the country. The demonstrations are showing no signs of abating and were triggered by the fatal police shooting of a 17-year-old of North African descent in a Paris suburb earlier this week. The killing is fueling anger over police violence in France, especially toward racial minorities. Joining me now to discuss this is Crystal Fleming. She's a sociology professor at Stony Brook University and the author of Resurrecting Slavery, Racial Legacies, and White Supremacy in France. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Are these demonstrations about this one killing or something bigger? Oh, it's about something much bigger. You know, in any society, the policing that we see and discrimination that takes place reflects the biases of that society and that society's history. In the Mm -hmm. case of France, They have a long history of colonial racism that has targeted Arab and Black people in particular in France. And so it really matters that this boy who was killed uh, was North African, French North African, we should be clear. Mm -hmm. But French people who are Arab, French people who are North African are racialized as non-white. And what that has entailed historically is colonial oppression, Um, In this particular case, Nael comes from a family of Algerian origin, and the French colonial oppression of Algerians began in the early 1800s. So this is a long history, and many people listening are probably familiar with the fact that there was a massive war in, in Algeria for independence, and that resulted in the deaths, according to the Algerian government, of over one million Algerian people who were fighting to overthrow French colonialism. So it's part of a much longer history of policing, but also colonial violence, and a racialized ideology that both combines discrimination with denial. So in France, it's very common for not just ordinary people, but government authorities to claim that race and racism don't exist in France. 
Do you think that will change in the wake of this killing? I mean, we've seen the French government uh, respond quickly. The president called the shooting unforgivable. The officer is now charged with voluntary homicide, but the protests continue. Do you see that this might create a significant change or opening? Well, one of the things I noticed is that the president claimed that what happened was his language was inexcusable, but he also described it as inexplicable. Mm. And the reality is that it's not inexplicable. It's not rocket science, it's racism. And so, you know, yes, there has been an effort to, you know, serve justice by holding this one police officer or the officers involved accountable. But that typically reflects a kind of bad apples approach, uh, which means that, you know, as opposed to acknowledging that what happened is a result of systemic racism in France, uh, you know, it's like one individual or one police officer is, you know, to blame. Crystal Fleming is a sociology professor at Stony Brook University. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. As soon as today, the Supreme Court will release one of its most anticipated opinions. One that has tens of millions of Americans on the edge of their seat. The court will decide whether to preserve or prohibit President Biden's plan to erase billions of dollars in federal student loan debt. NPR's Cory Turner has been covering that move by the Biden administration. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are the arguments here? Yeah, so the court is basically grappling with two big legal questions here. First... Is President Biden's debt plan legal? Is it constitutional? The administration argues, obviously, yes, because of a law known as the HEROES Act that passed not that long after the attacks of 9-11, and it gave the education secretary really broad power to modify or waive student loan rules. Those are the verbs in the law. In times of emergency, the administration argues emergency like the pandemic. Now, the plan's conservative opponents argue erasing some $400 billion in student loans isn't just modifying the rules. Here's the Republican chairwoman of the House Education Committee, Virginia Fox, several weeks ago. What the president has done is take on the role of Congress to appropriate money from the taxpayers to people who willingly took on a debt. I think what he has done is totally illegal. And Fox says if Congress really wanted to erase all these student loans, it would have done so itself. Uh, it is worth noting, Steve, that during oral arguments, the court's conservative majority seemed to agree. Okay, seemed to agree on that point. But mm -hmm. what was the other point that could decide this case? Yeah, so the other question they're trying to answer may actually be the Biden administration's only hope here. And that is, can any of these plaintiffs prove they'd be hurt by debt cancellation? Because, see, the court won't even rule on a case if the plaintiffs don't have what's called standing to sue in the first place. So in one of these cases, it was brought by a pair of borrowers, one of whom doesn't qualify for relief because of the kind of loans they have. The other mm -hmm. qualifies for $10,000 in cancellation, but wants to qualify for more. The other case that was brought by six conservative states, including Nebraska, and they've tried to show harm by saying a major student loan servicing company that borrowers know as Mohila would lose business and that would hurt the state it's in, Missouri. Okay, that doesn't sound like they absolutely have found someone who is directly harmed. No, because the company, Mohila, isn't even a plaintiff in the case. Here's Persis Yu. She's at the Student Borrower Protection Center. 
there really is no way that any of these plaintiffs have standing under existing case law. This is the reason why we saw the Republican-appointed district court-level judge throw out the case in Nebraska v. Biden. What's not clear, Steve, is how the court's conservative majority is going to weigh these standing issues against their clear concerns about the plan's legality. How many people uh, and how much money would be affected here? Yeah, I mean, as many as 43 million people could be affected here, as many as 20 million could have their debts erased. Then again, critics of the plan say, look, this could cost $400 billion and it would privilege Americans who went to college over those who couldn't or chose not to. NPR education correspondent Corey Turner, thanks as always. You're welcome, Steve. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, we get the latest reaction to the Supreme Court's rejection of race-conscious admissions as college admissions officials try to understand what it means for their institutions. Mostly sunny with temperatures in the low 80s today. Those fall into the mid-60s tonight and it grows mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and low 80s with a chance of showers in the afternoon. Rain is also possible on Sunday afternoon, otherwise mostly cloudy and in the low 80s. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. Newton's Riverside Center has a new owner. The building is across the street from the Riverside Tea Station on Grove Street. Boston-based Greatland Realty Partners and Bearings purchased the complex for nearly $118 million. That's half what the previous owner paid for the property. The group Historic New England plans to expand in Haverhill. It wants to build a cultural center around its headquarters there. Leaders of the group say it could include restaurants, performance space, and room for artists and residents. The center will be built at the site of two old shoe factories. There's a new Starbucks community store in Chelsea. The store has a community table and features artwork by local artists. Starbucks leaders tell the Boston Business Journal the store will also focus on local charity work. That could include backpack drives and mentorship workshops. The store is the first of its kind in the Northeast. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. All right, when some kind of disaster strikes and destroys your home, property insurance is there hopefully to help people rebuild 
their homes and their lives. But what happens when insurers decide they cannot do that anymore? Adrian Ma from NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, has the story. The property insurance market is like a big game of hot potato, where the potato is risk. That is how Melanie Gall thinks about it anyway. She co-directs the Center for Emergency Management and Homeland Security at Arizona State University. Let's assume you have a mortgage. Your mortgage holder is not willing for you to take that risk. So they force you to have homeowners insurance coverage. There is another participant in this game of hot, risky potato, something called reinsurers. So reinsurers are insurance companies who insure insurance companies. They pass down the hot potato to the reinsurer. But lately, this potato has just been getting too hot. The cost of reinsurance has skyrocketed in the past year or so, as much as 30, 40 percent. And that's partly why State Farm said it would stop writing new policies in California recently. The likelihood of a home being affected by wildfire has increased in some areas exponentially. This seems to be a trend. If you look at Florida, Texas, Louisiana, insurers have been calling it quits in those states. I think the insurance market will only get more challenging going forward because climate change is going to increase the risk for more severe flooding, hurricanes, wildfires, etc. So why would insurers quit instead of just, I don't know, raising their premiums? Melanie's guess is that insurers, for one thing, they have to think about how competitive they are. If their premium is a lot higher than a competitor's, who's going to buy a policy from them? So what does that leave homeowners with? For California, Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, they have a safety net option set up by their respective governments, what they call insurers of last resort. The problem is that it is generally a lot more expensive than the private market. So there is a somewhat societal and ethical problem, if you think about it, because these homes were allowed to be built. And it might have been safe to build in that area a few decades ago, but it's no longer safe because of the change in climate. So we got people stuck in high-risk homes. We got a huge demand for insurance that some insurers don't even want to touch. This is what you call a market breakdown. But Melanie believes that there are ways to try and mend it. She says you got to reduce the amount of risk that is out there. You know, cool down that potato. On the government side, the state could try and discourage development in hazard-prone areas. But Jim Donlin from Louisiana's Department of Insurance, he says... There are places where people have to live despite the risk. Understand this about our coastal area. It's a working coast. We don't have any pristine white beaches with high-rise condominiums. We supply a huge portion of the seafood that's consumed nationwide, and we supply a huge portion of the energy. All of that requires school teachers, firefighters, hospital personnel, who have to live in the same vicinity where those activities are taking place. To try and lure those insurance companies back, the state is offering up to $45 million in incentives. So far, Jim says about eight small insurance companies have shown interest in this. And he says, hopefully, others will follow. Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business.
This is NPR News. It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.15, it's going to feel like it's 110 degrees today in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, as the South continues to struggle with a brutal heat wave. We hear from officials in that city about how they're trying to protect residents. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org answers. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said, how well can you spit? And I just found it coming out of my mouth. I said, oh, I can hawk him with the best. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. On this week's show, Jewish matchmaker Aliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories. We're following this Friday morning. The Supreme Court is expected to issue its decision on President Biden's student debt relief plan today. Hundreds of people have been arrested in France after a third night of protests over the fatal police shooting of a 17-year-old. And Hollywood actors who are part of the SAG-AFTRA union may go on strike as their contract expires tonight. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The big question on many people's minds today is, will the weather cooperate for outdoor weekend plans and for fireworks on the 4th of July? Let's get an answer from WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning, Rupa. Okay, let's start with today. How's it looking? Today actually looks really nice. I mean, there's a little bit of low cloud cover and fog this morning in spots. That's going to burn off, and it's going to be a beautiful summer day. Now, it is still a little bit humid out there, um, so that's maybe the one thing if you're extra sensitive to that to be mindful of. Um, I think there's an isolated threat for a thunderstorm today, generally north and west of Boston, really hit or miss, not worth you know canceling your plans over it's like a 30% chance most of us actually will stay dry all day today and be up right around 80 degrees. Okay, now the weekend. How's it looking for cookouts or going to the beach? Okay, so that's when it starts to change just a little bit. I do think tomorrow's going to be a great day overall. Up near 80 again, 70s on Cape Cod, a little humid um, with a low risk of a thunderstorm. I think tomorrow we're dry, I'd say like 90% of the day. By the evening, there'll be some thunderstorms that come in from western Massachusetts. So you'll just kind of want to keep that in mind if there are fireworks planned in some cities and towns for tomorrow evening. There may be a couple that come in towards the later evening hours. For Sunday, there's going to be more scattered action. So I'd say like overall of the next few days, today and tomorrow are the best. And then Sunday and Monday feature scattered action. Good to know. Looking ahead to the 4th on Tuesday, what will it be like during the day? And do you think we'll have any problems with the fireworks? So we're still several days out, right? So what I will say is there is a threat for thunderstorms. Um, But I would think they're generally in the afternoon to early evening. Right now, everything I'm looking at is showing signs of some pop-up stuff, you know, kind of classic summer thunderstorm activity, but it may push offshore. There's a front that's going to be over us kind of pushing offshore during the day. So I actually think the fireworks may end up being good for one and all. 
but that the risk of a thunderstorm during the afternoon is still there. So once again, I can't stress it enough because we've hear, heard from folks, oh, I canceled my plans because there's a threat for thunderstorms. It's classic summer, right? So there's going to be stuff that pops up and then it will kind of dwindle out and then the sun may come back out. So just have, again, that plan to duck inside should you need to. I think right now most fireworks celebrations on the 4th will be okay, but stay tuned the next couple of days because obviously, Rupi, you know, fine-tuning timing, you know, a difference of an hour or two can make a big difference. WPUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce, thank you so much for all of this. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Rupa. Have a great weekend. In Provincetown, a nonprofit program called Summer of Sass offers LGBTQ plus young adults the opportunity to spend the season in an inclusive environment. The organization recently moved into a house that will allow them to quadruple the number of young adults they serve. WBUR's Ariel Gray took a trip to P-Town to learn more. Um, so, yeah, so welcome, obviously, our uh, big blue hall. And then this is our uh, activities room. Kristen Becker, the founder of Summer of Sass, is giving a tour of the new headquarters. The New England Victorian house is tucked away on a side street along the coast and has a sprawling front lawn and large porch. The inside tells a unique story. And now it's our little queer home. So All Modern came in and zhuzhed up the color and uh, gave us some sass. A disco ball hangs from the ceiling in a bedroom. Walls are painted in bright colors. Two tortoises sit happily in their tanks in the dining room. Currently, eight people call the house home as they participate in the summer of sass. In addition to subsidized housing, the program provides LGBTQ plus adults who are 18 to 20 years old with health resources and connections to local employment. Right, like we want to create happy, healthy humans. And so that's really what we focus on, which means that we work really hard to make sure that they know how to do what they need to do before they're out of this house and into the real world. Becker started the program in 2017 with a GoFundMe that raised around $2,600 and supported three young adults. By the second year, she secured a grant for $25,000, which allowed her to rent two properties and house six for the summer. And then it was just kind of rent a seasonal rental every year, do two to four kids as, as best she could and see what happens. And by year five, after the pandemic, basically, the housing market was terrible here, and even getting a seasonal rental was impossible. Last year, Becker got in contact with an anonymous donor who wanted to cover the cost of permanent housing. Becker was thinking they'd get something small. I mean, I really truly thought that maybe I'd get a little cottage, you know, a little two-bedroom cottage, and someone would give me a cute little million dollars, and that would be that. Instead, the donors covered the cost of the large five-bedroom Victorian, which sold for a whopping $3.7 million. It's an important step for the program, which will house up to 12 young adults for the summer. One of them is Ethan Jackson from Ohio, who is in his second year of Summer of Sass. Kept saying to myself, like, you know, I want to move and I want to, like, get a new start on life. And, um, <laughs> but then when I discovered Sass and I discovered Provincetown, um, I started, like, doing my research on, like, what Provincetown is, looking at pictures, videos, and I just knew this is where I wanted uh, to go. His first summer at the program, he stayed at a rental cottage. Now he and others have a home base to return to each summer until they age out. 
He says being a part of Summer of Sass has been an essential part of his personal growth. Coming down here was scary because, like, I've never been away from everything and, like, everyone I know of. Um, but things have been much better since I've been here. This is my life now, and um, I honestly can't imagine what my life would have been like if I just decided to stay home. This year, he's working at a local restaurant and hotel with Nivia Croto, a fellow participant in the program. This is her first summer in Provincetown, and it's very different from her hometown of Venice, Florida. Having a communal space where she can meet and form connections with other LGBTQ people has been important to her. Being in Florida, it was very hard to express myself and really step out of the box and who I wanted to be. And now seeing all these other people, it's giving me so much more inspiration and I can finally mold into the person I've really wanted to be for so long. The same donors who gifted the house have also committed to covering a quarter of the organization's annual budget going forward. It gives Summer of Sass a level of security that Becker had only dreamed of. This program will never die at this point. You know, like, even if there was a terrible financial ruin, this was a cash purchase. We sell it and move to something a little bit smaller and be like, sorry guys, mansion days are over, but it's going to live forever. Becker says that at the end of the day, the more adults the program can lead into being happy, healthy humans, the better prepared they are to smash the patriarchy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hundreds of people have been arrested after a third night of violent protests in France over the fatal police shooting of a teenager of North African descent. It's Friday, June 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, college admission professionals are pledging to maintain diversity on campuses despite the Supreme Court's rejection yesterday of affirmative action in admissions. I think today's decision is going to make it a lot harder and a lot more expensive for institutions of higher education and admission officers to bring in a diverse class. Plus, actors may go on strike tonight if a deal isn't reached on a contract with major studios. I just want to assure you that we are having an extremely productive negotiations that are laser-focused on all of the crucial issues. Also this hour, Vermont extends a pandemic-era program that places unhoused people in motel rooms. Mostly sunny and low 80s today, it's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Colleges and universities are evaluating yesterday's opinion by the Supreme Court, ending the explicit consideration of race in college admissions. Vice President Harris says she and President Biden are concerned the effects of the ruling will spill over into the business world. So the president, I thought, was very clear about saying to corporate America Mm -hmm. that we would expect that this decision will not in any way cloud their judgment about the importance of diversity in the workplace. Some industry groups, such as the American Medical Association, condemned the Supreme Court ruling. 
The AMA says this undermines decades of progress centered on the educational value of diversity, and it undermines the health of the nation. Air quality remains very poor in several eastern states. Smoke from Canadian wildfires continues to drift south, prompting air quality alerts from Michigan to North Carolina. One tracking site says the country's worst air quality this morning is in New York City. U.S. airlines are under pressure to make sure travelers are not left stranded and frustrated this July 4th weekend. A series of recent flight disruptions and problems plaguing the airline industry are prompting concerns. NPR's Kristen Wright reports today is a busy travel day for the holiday weekend. A record 4 million people are expected to fly over July 4th as airlines scramble to reschedule thousands of passengers whose flights were delayed and canceled after storms. United blames the Federal Aviation Administration and a shortage of air traffic controllers. Andrew Applebaum is with Flyers Rights. This year in particular, we're seeing pilot shortages, equipment shortages. Um, and even air traffic control shortages. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says his department is investigating unrealistic scheduling by the airlines and warning that planes won't be allowed to fly if they're not equipped to prevent wireless interference starting this busy travel weekend. Kristen Wright, NPR News, Washington. New York's embattled Republican Congressman George Santos is due back in a federal courtroom this morning. NPR's Brian Mann reports Santos faces 13 criminal charges ranging from wire fraud to theft of public funds. Today's hearing on Long Island is expected to focus on scheduling and other procedural matters. One question is how George Santos will balance the demands of his criminal trial with his long-shot campaign for re-election. Santos lied about much of his life story before winning office. Many Republicans say they won't support his bid for a second term. Speaking on Fox News, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said Santos shouldn't run for re-election. Santos fired back on Twitter, saying McCarthy's comments do not change my intention of running. But the court has already placed strict restrictions on Santos's travel, and the timing of court dates could complicate his ability to fundraise and campaign. Santos also faces a probe by the House Ethics Committee. Brian Mann, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is WB War in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new segment of the Green Line is closing for more than a month. The Green Line extension into Medford will shut down between mid-July and late August. The extension opened just over a year ago. The closure will allow crews to make repairs to Squires Bridge. Transit officials are warning that shuttle service will not replace the Green Line extension. Students at Harvard are reacting to the Supreme Court's decision to strike down affirmative action in college admissions. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the issue brings up a range of feelings. For some students, the ruling was a pleasant surprise. Natalie Lay is in graduate school at Harvard and is a member of the group Students for Liberty. If you just focus mainly on my skin color, then I'm very much the same as any other Asian individual when I'm so much more than that. But others, like Rebecca Zhang, who's a rising sophomore at Harvard, say the decision is deeply disappointing. I'm really hoping that this will mobilize a lot of students and youth and other supporters to really come out and support building a multiracial democracy. Harvard leadership says while the decision will change admissions procedures, they remain steadfast in their commitment to diversity on campus. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The Hull-O trolley in Hull will not be running this summer. City officials say they didn't receive a grant necessary to get the trolley up and running. It's unclear if the trolley will be in service next year. 
More than one million Massachusetts drivers are expected to hit the road this weekend for the 4th of July holiday. Mary McGuire with AAA Northeast says this afternoon and evening will likely be the busiest times on the road as people head out of town for the long weekend. So if you can get out of town by early afternoon, for example, that will probably save you some time on congested roadways. And it always is a great idea to leave early because it allows you more time to weather any obstacles that you might find along the way. McGuire says there's often a spike in traffic accidents during busy holiday weekends. So she's reminding people to buckle up. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moon focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. The Marlins swept the Red Sox at home last night. Yesterday's game ended with a two-run win for Miami. It marks the Red Sox' fifth straight loss. The team now heads to Toronto to play the Blue Jays tonight. Mostly sunny today with a high near 81. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 64. Some patchy fog tomorrow morning, then mostly sunny with a high near 82. There's a slight chance of showers in the afternoon. Sunday, mostly cloudy, a high near 82 with a chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 73 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Just check the forecast for Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They expect a high today of 100 degrees. In a moment, Layla calls up the mayor, who's hopefully indoors, but we start with the heated discussion of a Supreme Court ruling. We have some preliminary answers to how that ruling affects university admissions. The court majority rejected elaborate policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Both elite schools looked at race as one factor in the admissions process. The ruling says that violates the Constitution's requirement for equal treatment regardless of race. Dissenters said the Constitution promises equality, and it was all right for schools to act on that promise. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney is here. Good morning. Good morning. First, how did the court explain its ruling? So Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion, and he said, however well-intentioned the policies at UNC and Harvard were, they failed to use race within the narrow confines of what the Constitution allows. He did leave the door open, writing that schools could consider an application's discussion of how race affected his or her life. Mm -hmm. I talked about this with Sarah Parshall Perry. She's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, who was encouraged by the decision. The court is clear that universities can consider an applicant's discussion of how race affected their individual lives. But we will no longer see individuals checking a box or being subjected to a college or university's quota system. So universities don't really have quotas, but Harvard was using a point system to rate students' identities. And this is the thing the court says is wrong now. If you had an individual experience with race that you want to talk about in your application, you can do that, but you no longer get credit, the court says, for being a member of a group, uh, so-called. What are colleges and admissions professionals saying about all that? 
So even though it was expected, it's a major blow to colleges who are committed to diverse campuses. I talked with Angel Perez. He leads the National Association of College Admission Counseling. Today's decision is going to make it a lot harder and a lot more expensive for institutions of higher education and admission officers to bring in a diverse class. He points to the University of California. There, it took decades, a complete admissions redesign and hundreds of millions of dollars to try and get those diversity numbers back up after the state's affirmative action ban in the late 1990s. He says most states, most colleges don't have that kind of money or political will. Uh, this is an interesting point because uh, you're telling me that universities in response to this are not saying we're abandoning diversity. They're saying we're going to try to get diversity in some other way. Does this affect every university? Well, it is a nationwide ruling, but most schools are open access. Think community college, lots of, you know, public four-year schools. Only a small portion, about 200, have highly selective admissions where this decision would apply. But what happens at elite institutions matters. They're gatekeepers to power in America. Take the Supreme Court justices. Currently eight of the nine attended law school at Harvard or Yale. Hmm. What does this mean for high school students who might be applying for college soon? I spoke with Sanjay Mitchell. He's a longtime high school counselor in Washington, D.C. He's been working with the students already to kind of reframe their essays to touch on their lived experience. But he says this whole thing has caused a lot of anxiety. So students are asking the questions like, well, does my identity not matter anymore? Does that now mean that we are only going to be relegated to HBCUs? And those are the thoughtful responses, Elisa. The other kind of responses that we're hearing is, well, I guess they really don't want us to go to college. You know, well, they always say that college isn't for everyone. Hmm. HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. What can colleges do within the law now to improve diversity? We can expect an increased focus on that essay, um, recruitment, expanding financial aid, including free college programs, and colleges may go test optional. But, you know, over and over, research has shown that nothing is as effective at creating a racially diverse student body as considering race. NPR's Alyssa Nedborny, thanks so much. You bet. A heat wave stretching from Texas to Florida has brought triple-digit temperatures and killed at least 14 people. Keep in mind, this is a part of the country that knows how to handle the heat. Southeastern Louisiana this week has seen the heat index, also known as the feels-like temperature, rise above 110 degrees and staying that way at night. We've called up Sharon Weston-Broom. She's the mayor president of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to see how her city and its residents are dealing with the heat. Good morning, Mayor. I hope you're staying cool. Good morning. Yes, uh, we have some uh, really high heat index, but uh, we do have some good uh, places for people to stay cool. Well, let's talk about that. What are you telling residents of Baton Rouge to do in this heat? Well, of course, uh, we are making sure that we tell people to stay hydrated. We're focused, of course, on our senior citizens, making sure that people check on their uh, neighbor, of course. And we are also telling people that if they do need uh, air conditioning, if they don't have access in their home, we have over 14 locations where people can come and cool off. How unusual is this kind of heat in your city in June? Well, uh, I would definitely say that water and heat are a way of life in South Louisiana, of course. But I think in June, what we're experiencing right now is pretty exceptional. And you mentioned the vulnerable, the elderly. What type of services are you offering beyond cooling centers for people living in poverty, homeless population, the elderly? 
Well, of course, we have our Council on Aging, uh, social workers and uh, case managers who can assist our senior citizens. We have shelters uh, for the homeless population where these agencies have increased their capacity to respond uh, to the heat. We have what we call our hot team uh, and other partners who are going around visiting unhoused and encampments during this time. Are you getting the support you need from the state to deal with this heat in June? Well, yes, I will say since we are the capital city uh, and we do have a good relationship with our governor, we do collaborate and uh, certainly communicate on how we can uh, make sure that our residents are safe during this time. How worried are you about the fact that the heat has come so early this year and what it might mean for the future of your city generally? Well, of course, you know, I certainly believe that climate change is reality and we are evidence of that. But I believe because, as I said, heat and water management are a way of life for South Louisiana, that we are prepared. We're, we call it red stick ready to help our citizens during this time. So what can other places that are not used to this type of heat and these types of weather-related issues learn from Baton Rouge? Well, one of the things that we uh, do on a regular basis is we communicate with our citizens on all platforms, whether we need to do a press conference, whether it's social media. We are constantly putting out messages, uh, safety tips, encouraging our citizens to monitor the weather, to stay hydrated. I think that is a sentence you hear from everyone you come in contact with, stay hydrated. Uh, we encourage people to be cognizant of leaving pets and people in vehicles. So we just constantly get out the message uh, to our citizens. And we're always emphasizing the buddy system and checking on family members and neighbors. So I would say during this time, constant communication is something that would definitely be advantageous. And do you expect relief from these high temperatures anytime soon? Well, I know this weekend uh, we're expecting heat, but I, I believe sometime in the latter part of next week we will see some relief. Sharon Weston-Broom is the mayor president of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Thank you so much. Thank you. Because so many places are overheated, we asked our listeners for their tips. My name is Rowan Abassi. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I stay cool by wearing clothes made out of fabrics such as cotton or linen. The breathable fabrics really help me stay cool in the summer, especially as a Muslim woman who dresses modestly. My name is Nathan Zhu. I live in McLean, Virginia, and I stay cool by washing my face with cold water, uh, especially behind the ears. My name is Ellen Craven. I live in Jackson, Mississippi. Recently, we had a power outage that lasted five days, so our AC was out. And the way I fell asleep at night was I would cover myself in peppermint oil. And this really cools you down. It makes you shiver. And I would get under the covers and shiver until I fell asleep. <laughs> My name is Elizabeth Mayans. I live in Eugene, Oregon. And I stay cool by trying not to use my oven or stove at all in the summer. Jennifer Curry, I live in Guanacaste, Costa Rica. Our local Walmart does have the best AC in town, so occasionally you can find me lounging in the furniture section to cool off. 
My name is Brendan Schutz and I live in Potsdam, Germany, but I just moved from Austin, Texas, and I stay cool by cracking windows at night and using fans during the day. Sienna Sullivan and I live in New York City and I stay cool in the summer by eating frozen fruit. Lily Price, I live in Suva, Fiji, so it's hot and humid. I stay cool by wearing dresses, as do most Fijian women, and men wear a sulu, which is pretty similar to a skirt. We all do it for that ventilation factor. <laughs> I love the collective wisdom there from around the world, listeners around the world. Um, you know, one thing that I do, Layla, and maybe you will relate to this, I learned from reporting in Pakistan and in various countries, Iraq, countries in the Middle East, to uh, long sleeves, long pants, like, yeah. and, and I'll do that here in the United States. Just keep the sun off yourself. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I didn't even know what winter was until I was like 15. <laughs> so I just stay inside or I stay in water. That's my, those are my tips. <laughs> oh, you can relate to the person who said, I go to Walmart for the best air conditioning. Air conditioner all the way. There you go. This, hoping you stay cool, this is NPR News. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, actors and major Hollywood studios have been negotiating a new contract for weeks. If an agreement isn't reached by tonight, actors could go on strike. It's 819. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? To this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Pulitzer Prize-winning musician Rhiannon Giddens. Should you sing a spiritual like you, a 78-year-old black woman from Alabama? No. <laughs> Sing a spiritual like you are. Because, like, what are spirituals anyway? They're amalgamation of African and European musical elements. So it's like, why does anybody own that? Nobody owns that. Have respect. That's On Point. This morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Just a few clouds today. Otherwise, we'll have sunny skies and highs in the low 80s. Tonight, more clouds move in and it falls to lows in the mid-60s. Saturday, mostly sunny and low 80s with a chance of afternoon showers. Mostly cloudy on Sunday and in the low 80s with another chance of afternoon showers. It's 74 degrees in Boston. Your inbox is another easy way to follow the news from WBUR. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. 
More information is available at lummelson.org. From Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion, learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Despite inflation, despite rising interest rates, the U.S. economy remains strong. It grew more quickly than expected in the first three months of the year. And one big reason is that people kept spending money. We find out later today if that spending has continued in the second quarter. NPR's Scott Horsley has been talking with people about their spending habits. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So how much are people spending? You know, spending has held up surprisingly well in spite of inflation and worries about a recession on the horizon. Uh, the new numbers from the Commerce Department yesterday showed spending jumped at an annual pace of more than 4% during the first three months of the year. Hmm. That's the biggest increase since the spring of 2021, when we were just starting to get widespread vaccinations and lots of people started venturing out again. We know that spending took another big jump in April, and we're going to get the May figures later this morning. Uh, gasoline prices were down a little bit last month. Grocery prices were fairly flat. That might have freed up cash for people to spend on other things. I talked to Claudine Marcantonio, who's an academic advisor at Brooklyn College. Uh, her husband manages a swimming pool. She says they're enjoying some of these price breaks, but her overall grocery bill is still pretty high. I have noticed that prices for certain things have been going down, like eggs was really high for some time. and A lot of different things were really high. And I've noticed that it's been coming down, but I've definitely still paid a good amount. But I have to feed my family, so. We're also going to get new numbers uh, on inflation today for the month of May uh, using the yardstick from the Commerce Department, which is closely watched by the Federal Reserve. And, of course, we're going to get numbers on personal income, which, of course, determines how much money people have to spend. Are people's incomes keeping pace with the money that's going out the door? Yeah, not necessarily. Uh, in April, personal spending grew twice as fast as personal income. So in order to bankroll that spending, people either had to draw down savings or borrow money. Uh, Mark Antonio says she was able to pay off some of her credit card debt early in the pandemic, but now it's starting to creep up again. Now I'm back to using my credit cards for like basic things and it's a little bit uncomfortable when that happens. I don't want it to get out of hand. And she's not alone. Credit card debt has been growing in recent months. And that debt is expensive given the rising interest rates. According to Bankrate, the average interest rate on credit card is now uh, 20%, is north of 20%. It's mm. an all-time high. Of course, if you pay it off every month, the interest rate doesn't really matter much. But nearly half of all credit card users do carry a balance from month to month. Are people cutting costs in any way? Yeah, you know, two years into this period of rising prices, people have definitely found ways to cut corners. Uh, that might mean shopping at discount stores, juggling streaming services so they pay for just one or two and drop the others in between the season of their favorite shows. Mark Antonio says she tries to avoid what she calls frivolous expenses, like getting her nails done, and she looks for free ways to entertain her four-year-old daughter. She did decide to splurge this weekend, though, on a family trip home to Jamaica, where she'll be celebrating her 40th birthday. This is going to be the first time that my daughter will be there. And since things are getting a little better with COVID, I wanted to make that trip. But everything's charged <laughs> just because it was just so expensive. So people are mindful about how they're spending, but they're still spending. And that's a big reason the economy keeps humming for now. Scott, uh, go buy yourself something nice. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steve. NPR's Scott Horsley. Mm -hmm. 
Today from StoryCorps, remembering life in the rodeo. Charlie Sampson rode bulls competitively for 20 years. He was the first black man to win the bull riding world championships. He told his son Daniel that he found his calling when he visited a carnival as a boy. Outside the tent was ponies. And we gave a man a quarter, went around the ring five times, and that was the beginning of a lifestyle that I never dreamed of. You know, if you've been on a roller coaster and you're holding on to that handle, and as you go down, screaming, holding for your dear life, that's the only way I can describe riding a bull. You broke every bone in your body except your nose. Is that accurate? <laughs> that's true. I've been hit upside the head, had a bull step on my chest, crush my sternum, broke two ribs, punctured a lung, broke every bone in my face. Another injury, lost my ear, but I, I didn't survive this livelihood that I love. And then to get back up and get back on, that shows your love and passion. It was a fear, love that I had for riding bulls. I was scared of them, but I loved the challenge. That's just who I was, a bull rider. So was it hard being away from us when we were younger? I'm a traveling cowboy. I didn't have no other life to live. But the sad part was leaving because your mom would tell me that. You would cry like, where my dad at? Where my dad at? And it was joy to see you guys when I came home. I remember you would come to career day dressed up in chaps, spurs, cowboy boots, cowboy hat. It's kind of cool seeing people amazed by what you did. I guess I was a pretty cool dad. <laughs> yes. So how did you come to the decision to retire? When was it time to stop? I got hurt again. Then the Lord just hit me and said, okay, Charles, you're done. And I haven't been on a bull since. You give so much to the sport, then when you're done, you're done. But your family is more important than a lifestyle. I had two beautiful sons, four grandkids that I love. My joy now is just to see them be happy. You know, I worked hard for the little things I have. Yeah, I thank God all the time that I'm here to tell the story. Former bull riding champion Charlie Sampson with his son Daniel at StoryCorps in Denver. Today, Charlie works at a dude ranch and takes his grandkids to the rodeo. This conversation will be archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We'll hear from a Boston University law professor on what the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action could mean for local universities and colleges. It's 829. As you're heading out the door today, use the WBUR app to keep listening live. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 23rd at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule today on President Biden's proposal to erase billions of dollars in federal student loan debt. The president's plan includes the elimination of up to $10,000 in debt for those with incomes below $125,000 a year or households earning less than $250,000 annually. A jury in Florida has acquitted a former Broward County Sheriff's deputy on charges stemming from his response to a deadly shooting at a high school in Parkland. That was back in 2018. Scott Peterson was found not guilty of child neglect and other counts stemming from the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Seventeen people were killed, mostly students. The charges against Peterson were tied to the shooting deaths of six people and the wounding of several others more than a minute after Peterson arrived on scene. Tony Montaldo lost his daughter Gina in the attack. He spoke to reporters about the verdict. It will not change the video that should be seared in everyone's mind of his cowardly actions as he ran away from that building where the shots were ringing out where students and teachers were defenseless. Peterson was the school resource officer on duty when that shooting occurred. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A 15-year-old is under arrest for spray-painting racist graffiti on a synagogue in Taunton earlier this month. Police say the boy painted anti-Semitic and other hateful messages on the building. He now faces charges related to vandalism and intimidation. He's due in court at a later date. A Provincetown nonprofit that provides LGBTQ plus young adults with housing and resources has a new home. The move will enable the group called Summer of Sass to grow. WBUR's Ariel Gray has more. Anonymous donors covered the cost of a $3.7 million Victorian house for the organization. Those donors are also providing a quarter of the nonprofit's annual budget going forward. It's a level of security for Summer of Sass that founder Kristen Becker says she had only dreamed of. This program will never die at this point. You know, like, even if there was a terrible financial ruin, this was a cash purchase. <laughs> we sell it and move to something a little bit smaller and be like, sorry guys, mansion days are over. But it's going to live forever. Summer of Sass can now house 8 to 12 LGBTQ plus young adults, four times its old capacity. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. City officials plan to add a bike lane on Boylston Street in Back Bay. The move would cut most of the street down to two lanes and some parts of it to just one lane. Those against the change tell the Boston Globe they're worried about traffic backups. Supporters say the move would make the area friendlier for people not traveling by car. The city hopes to have the bike lanes completed by the end of the year. It's 833. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. The Red Sox couldn't keep up with the Miami Marlins last night. The 2-0 loss marks the team's fifth straight defeat. The Sox will play in Toronto tonight at 7. Low 80s today under mostly sunny skies, mid-60s tonight, and it'll be mostly overcast. Then in the low 80s all weekend with mostly sunny skies on Saturday and mostly cloudy skies on Sunday, there's a chance of afternoon showers both days. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have a Hollywood cliffhanger next. Actors have a strike deadline tonight. Their union, known by the acronym SAG-AFTRA, has been negotiating with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers for several weeks. But if they don't reach an agreement or extend the deadline, the actors would walk out as the writers already did. NPR's Mandalay Del Barco is covering this. Hey there. Hey, Steve. So how close are they to a deal? Well, you know, early this week, things seemed to be looking good. SAG after President Fran Drescher, you may remember her from the TV show The Nanny. Mm -hmm. Well, she sent a video message about the negotiations to members. Well, frankly, it's very confidential what's going on in there. But I just want to assure you that we are having an extremely productive negotiations that are laser focused on all of the crucial issues you told us are most important to you. And we're standing strong and we're going to achieve a seminal deal. Love that familiar voice, but please go on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, some of those crucial issues she was talking about include getting better residuals from hit shows on the streaming platforms. And also a big concern for the actors is getting protected from the use of artificial intelligence. Actors are afraid their images and their work is going to be replaced by AI. Hmm, A mirror of one of the concerns in the writer's strike. But if they seemed close on these things, why might they still strike? Well, apparently many of the members were worried that the negotiators weren't standing firm enough. You know, nearly all of them, 98%, had already voted to authorize a strike if needed. And after Fran Drescher's message went out, actors sent them a letter urging them not to settle for a deal and saying they were ready to strike. That was signed by 300 members, including A-listers Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, and Quinta Brunson. And by the following day, the list grew to more than 1,000 performers, including Amy Poehler, Joaquin Phoenix, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Pedro Pascal. And um, this is the most curious part, though, Steve. Fran Drescher also signed the letter that was addressed to herself and other <laughs> SAG-AFTRA leaders. You know, so we'll have to see if they call a strike. And You know, for full transparency, I do have to say that many of us here at NPR are members of SAG-AFTRA, but we're not covered under the TV theatrical contract, so we would not be expected to go on strike if one is called. Nevertheless, if the actors go on strike, they would join the writers on strike. What's that been like in recent days? 
Yeah, well, you know, I've gone to so many of the picket lines these past two months, and I've met a lot of actors who've been protesting in solidarity with the writers, some of them famous, some of them background extras, and all of them told me that they're ready to strike. Yesterday, I was outside Netflix, where uh, striking writers got a special visit from Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. Here's what Fonda told the crowd about the studios and the streamers. They better watch out. <laughs> If the actors go out with the writers, this industry will be shut down. So I should mention, Steve, that the last time there was a dual strike in Hollywood, it was 1960. The Screen Actors Guild hadn't yet merged with AFTRA, and that was led by then-actor Ronald Reagan, long before he was president. Hmm. And the actors joined with the writers to demand they get paid residuals if movies were played on TV. Now they're asking for residuals from the streamers. Okay, some things change but stay the same. Mandalit, thanks so much. Thank you. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco, our culture correspondent in Los Angeles. Vermont has extended a pandemic-era program that pays for motel rooms for homeless people. But that decision came too late for hundreds who had already been evicted. As Michaela Lafrac with Vermont Public reports, many of them have ended up living in tents. A woman named Tam stands on the porch of a community center in Montpelier, Vermont. The center serves people experiencing homelessness. And since June 1st, that includes her. She wears a backpack with all her belongings in it, and every night she pitches a tent. I've got like various campsites around here. Like I move every day. Tam is one of about 800 Vermonters who are evicted from their motel rooms at the beginning of June. She experienced some threats of violence from her neighbors at the motel, which is why we're only using her first name. Despite those challenges, she calls her motel room a lifeline. It got us out of the cold. I think we're all grateful for the program. It just would have been really nice if it would have helped us transition into something a little more permanent. During the pandemic, the state dramatically scaled up the motel program with the help of federal COVID relief dollars to meet a new level of need. But those funds ran out and the state began evicting people. The reality of Vermont's affordable housing shortage came into stark relief. Most shelters were already full. Aid organizations began handing out free tents to people like Tam. Others, like Colby Lynch, left the state. She moved in with family in New Hampshire. I'm just thankful that my mom is able to take me in and I'm not sleeping in a car. Lynch had a job at a bowling alley and she'd been searching for months for a place to rent with no luck. The day of her eviction, it was 90 degrees. As she drove away, she saw many of her former neighbors sitting on the curb with nowhere else to go. They didn't have vehicles. They were literally out there on the curb with their stuff. A second wave of evictions was scheduled for July. It would affect another 2,000 or so people, including children and people with serious medical issues. Rick DeAngelis is the executive director of Good Samaritan Haven. They operate three shelters in central Vermont, all full. DeAngelis says he and other advocates for the unhoused tried to sound the alarm to state lawmakers, pushing them to extend the program a bit longer. I'm hoping that this is one of those turning points. I don't know, maybe that's just looking at it through rose-colored glasses or something, but I'm hopeful of that. Vermont's democratically controlled legislature and Republican governor agreed to extend the motel program for about another year. Senate Majority Leader Allison Clarkson helped push it through. It became apparent that the transition plan was not in place, 
and that to continue the emergency pandemic plan was the wisest move to give everybody an opportunity to develop the housing alternatives that we needed to house the 1,800 remaining unsheltered Vermonters. Still, the 800 or so people who are already evicted likely won't be getting their rooms back. A month after her eviction, Tam in Montpelier is still wondering how she ended up living in a tent. For all the years prior to COVID, I never had a problem with paying the rent. It just seems like after COVID that this has happened to me. I don't know. And I'm just hoping it changes at some point. So, yeah, maybe I had some attitudes about homeless people until I actually lost my home. She has plans to take a bus to a Vermont ski town to see if any of the resorts there have cleaning jobs. She's heard that sometimes those gigs come with a room. For NPR News, I'm Michaela Lafrac. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the potential impact of a new federal law that went into effect earlier this week. It aims to increase protections for pregnant and postpartum workers. Mostly sunny with temperatures in the low 80s today. Those fall to the mid-60s tonight and it grows mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and low 80s with a chance of showers in the afternoon. Rain is also possible on Sunday afternoon. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy and in the low 80s. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College. Offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. For more information, visit bu.edu met. The league that hosts the Boston Pride women's hockey team will soon be under new ownership. The Mark Walter Group and Billie Jean King Enterprises bought the Premier Hockey Federation. As a result, the league will stop operations. All player contracts will be terminated. Burlington-based Azenta Life Sciences plans to open a new bio-storage facility in Billerica. The site will provide storage for ultra-cold bio-samples. It'll also have cryo-freezers. The site is expected to open at the end of this year. Boston-based sports betting company DraftKings struck out on its bid to acquire another online gaming platform. The company offered $195 million to acquire the U.S. operations of PointsBet Holdings. PointsBet will be acquired by Fanatics instead. That company offered $225 million to buy the platform. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. 
Your car has a story too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org slash cars. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Leaders at colleges and universities across Massachusetts say they'll continue to work toward diversity on campus. That follows yesterday's U.S. Supreme Court decision that schools can no longer use race-based admissions. The case involved programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Joining us now to talk about the ramifications of yesterday's ruling is Jonathan Feingold. He's a professor at Boston University School of Law and co-authored an amicus brief in support of Harvard and UNC. Good morning, Professor. Good morning, Rupa. So nice to be with you. Thanks for being here. We're coming up on 24 hours since this decision was released. What's the reaction and conversation been like among people like you who understand the legal issues and history behind this decision? So I think, one, it was a predictable decision, in part because we know with a um, six-member conservative majority that has long been hostile to even modest civil rights efforts, we were not expecting Uh, a win for Harvard and UNC. But I think even um, folks like I were surprised by how grotesquely Justice Roberts' opinion disordered both history and fact and really seemed to elevate a commitment to colorblindness over the Constitution itself. But the other surprise was that the ruling was actually somewhat narrow. Justice Roberts did not, in a per se way, end all race-conscious admissions. And he also made quite clear that universities can continue to consider how racism has affected individual students. How do you think that'll play out within the confines of yesterday's ruling? So I think that remains to be seen. What I would hope is that schools and universities find other ways to get a sense of whether students had to confront different sorts of uh, adversity, um, burdens, hurdles in their lives, including racial discrimination. And, and I was heartened to see that um, uh, Biden's administration has already put out helpful guidance to schools across the country in which they offer some great ideas for how to consider taking into account the individual experiences of students, um, but without necessarily putting all the burden on students to tell those stories themselves. Boston is a huge college town. We have an amazing number of colleges and universities locally. Is it possible that because of this ruling, we'll see a different makeup of the people around us here in 10 years or 20 years? So it's certainly possible. For the schools that today or yesterday consider the racial identity of individual students, if they simply stop doing so but don't change anything else, we will see a different makeup. And the reason should be obvious to any listener. We know that the United States remains a society in which race and racism shape every aspect of of our private and public lives. And so if you're not able to take that into account in a highly competitive selection process, then you know that you're going to inevitably be locking out students who face racial headwinds and giving an unearned advantage to those who enjoy a racial tailwind. And the only other thing that I'll mention is that In addition to the court making clear that universities can consider a student's individual experiences with racism, they also offer this very interesting carve out for military academies and arguably other institutions that have distinct um, uh, interests. 
And what I would encourage law schools to do and medical schools to do and other professional schools that exist outside of the context of the undergraduate system at issue here was to think hard as to whether or not your institution, your field might actually also apply to that exemption. Uh, because there's no reason why institutions have to do the work of this right-wing majority and stop taking still lawful steps to promote more racially just and racially inclusive admissions processes. John Feingold is a professor at Boston University School of Law. We should note Boston University holds WBUR's broadcast license. Thanks so much for talking this morning. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Rupa. WBUR coming up at the top of the hour. It's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on violent protests over the fatal police shooting of a teenager in France. A French policeman has been charged with homicide and is now in custody. It's 8.50. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said, how well can you spit? And I just found it coming out of my mouth, I said, oh, I can hawk him with the best. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal on this week's show. Jewish matchmaker Aliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Following yesterday's decision on affirmative action, the Supreme Court is expected to rule today on challenges to President Joe Biden's debt forgiveness plan. Unionized Hollywood actors are on the verge of a strike amid contract negotiations with studios. And air quality is plummeting as smoke from Canadian wildfires spreads across the eastern U.S. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. We'll have mostly sunny skies for our Friday today. It'll be in the low 80s. Clouds move in tonight and it drops to the mid-60s. Saturday, low 80s and mostly sunny. Afternoon showers are possible. Sunday, mostly cloudy and low 80s with another chance of afternoon showers. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. The Supreme Court is deciding the fate of student loan forgiveness. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets, affinity.co slash marketplace. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Is the Biden administration's plan to forgive billions in student loan debt constitutional? The Supreme Court is expected to hand down its decision in two cases around that question later today. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. 
The Biden administration's program would eliminate some or all of the student loan debt held by more than 40 million Americans, as much as $10,000 or even $20,000 per borrower. But during oral arguments in February for two cases challenging the program, a majority of the Supreme Court justices seemed to doubt claims that the executive branch has the authority to implement such a sweeping plan. Congress may need to offer express consent. There is a second issue the justices are considering, whether the plaintiffs in the two cases have standing. That means whether they've credibly shown that they'd suffer if the plan went into effect and therefore have the right to sue. If a majority of the justices say no, the debt forgiveness program could survive on a legal technicality. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Now that colleges and universities can no longer consider race in admissions, the percentage of racial minorities enrolled in selective colleges it's probably going to go down in the coming years, at least at first. That's what happened in states that previously eliminated affirmative action. So following the Supreme Court's decision yesterday, schools that still want to have racially diverse student bodies may try other strategies. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more. Since colleges can no longer legally consider what race applicants are, more schools may start considering what socioeconomic class they are. Brian Cook is director of higher education policy at the Urban Institute. So class-based affirmative action is essentially giving a significant weight to students who come from lower-income households. The idea is that disproportionately, Black, Latino, and Indigenous populations tend to be lower income. And such a policy could lead to both economic and racial diversity. But Cook points out a lot of low-income students are also white. So... That in and of itself doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a racially diverse group of students. Another possible strategy... Get rid of or reduce legacy admissions, which give preference to the children of alumni. These applicants are more likely to be admitted at some highly selective colleges. Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York has filed legislation that would ban the practice. Legacy admissions benefit white people and benefit the wealthiest among us and keep poor people and black people and people of color out of schools. But those wealthy people are also a major source of revenue for schools. Colleges rely on them for fundraising, and schools want to stay connected to alumni for reasons other than the financial. Again, Brian Cook of Urban. Legacy admits have been around for a reason. Just completely eliminating them is not an easy decision for institutions to make. Higher education is still, at its core, a business. And these schools don't want to alienate any of their customers. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the four, to full, four tenths to a full percent range with the Dow futures up 154 points. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab offers a modern approach to wealth management with personalized financial planning to meet an investor's specific needs and the flexibility to adapt as those needs change with time. Learn more at schwab.com plan. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. A new federal law went into effect earlier this week aiming to protect pregnant and postpartum workers. Up till now, safeguards for pregnant workers have not been entirely effective. Marketplace's David Brancaccio spoke with Jillian Thomas, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, about the details of the new law. There have been protections in place for 
pregnant workers, but there were holes in the system from your point of view. There were major gaps. The Americans with Disabilities Act provides for accommodations for workers with disabilities, but pregnancy, at least without complications, is recognized to not constitute a disability. But the Pregnancy Discrimination Act only protected pregnant workers needing those kinds of accommodations to the extent that the employer provided those accommodations to others similar in their ability or inability to work. And for years, both employers and the courts have been struggling with defining who is similar. And frequently it was decided to the detriment of the pregnant worker. Give us a sense, who should be really focused on this? Who stands to benefit the most from the effects of this law? Millions of workers who are in jobs that are physically demanding are going to be the chief beneficiaries of this new statute. And that ranges from low-wage workers who do really physically strenuous work, whether it's retail workers who are on their feet all day long, custodians who work with hazardous chemicals, workers like nurses or home health aides who lift patients in and out of bed. And the workers who are in those positions are disproportionately black and brown women, women who, by the way, are at greatest risk of complications from pregnancy. And then there are also the women who are working in jobs that are historically male-dominated, where the employer may not even have thought about pregnancy much before. So in virtually every case, process would start with a conversation between employees and manager. But if the employee doesn't like the answer, I guess part number two would be, hey, there's a new law in effect. That's right. Really, the hope is that this statute is not going to lead to lots and lots of new litigation, but is actually going to avoid litigation. The interactive process that's been in place for so long under the ADA is something that employers are now practiced at. And it involves the worker coming forward with describing what their limitations are, what they can and can't do, the employer providing some different alternatives, and the employee maybe comes back and says, well, I can do that, but not this. And, and hopefully a resolution comes about relatively quickly and cooperatively. In the worst case scenario, when that's not possible, then the next step is, yes, going to the enforcement regime. Julian Thomas is a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Marketplace's David Brancaccio there. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. A mostly sunny Friday today in the low 80s. Tonight it grows overcast and falls to the mid-60s. Right now, it's 77 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.